Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Um, <clears throat> I'm sad to report that today, our fearless Duncan Idaho, Pete, has gone off to the Fremen, and he's not here with us in this recording session. We miss him. He'll be back. Um, and as you can tell by my very forced uh, <clears throat> metaphors, <laughs> this is still Dune Month. We're still deep in the sands. We're getting to the deep desert here. Um and we're joined by a guest who's going to lend some particular expertise. Uh, he is many things. He is a grad student in environmental policy and planning at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, the town where I was born. Woo, go blue. Uh, he is a member of the steering committee for the Democratic Socialists of America Eco-Socialist Working Group. And I would be remiss if I didn't add to embarrass him a little bit. He used to, I think it's really cool. He used to play professional poker and he's a patron of our show. That is Matt Haugen. Did I pronounce that right, man? Yeah, good job. Uh, a lot of times people have trouble with that. <laughs> well, it's, you have the, the correct German pronunciation, so that's good. Uh, welcome, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be on. And um, one reason that we decided to have you on is you know a lot about ecology, especially from sort of a contemporary policy point of view. Um, and of course, Dune is the product of a writer who was very interested in ecology. Actually, I believe Frank Herbert turned his property in Oregon once he had the money from Dune into like his weird sort of ecological testing station and had all kinds of like greenhouses and weird gardens and stuff going on. And of course, the book, as I keep mentioning, is dedicated to future planetary ecologists. So, you know, this is part of Herbert's, uh, you could say presumption, but since it is such an enduring book, he might get there, that he's going to be read far into the future by people who are invested in like planet level ecological engineering. Um, so we thought that, you know, you could help us out with all of that. Um, you know, I guess first I want to ask you, like, what's your relationship to Dune? Did you read this as a kid like a lot of people did or did you come to it more recently? Yeah. So like I was a huge nerd growing up and like I used to carry novels around with me at school in like fifth grade. Um, and Dune was definitely one of the first ones I read. Uh, I'm pretty sure my dad recommended it to me. And like a lot of young guys who read Dune, um, pretty much fall in love with it. But uh, because you guys were doing a Dune month, I reread it like last month. Um, it was kind of interesting to revisit it now versus then. Like, what were some of the things that really stood out to you, you know, based on the, the sort of oppositions or, co or comparisons between reading it when you were a kid and then reading it now as an adult in light of all the things you've learned in between? Well, definitely, like, um, and you, I think you guys have talked about this, the, the uh, gender, uh, problematic gender issues in, in there that I wasn't really privy to back then. Um, I think the, the politics of Dune also are just like 
very bizarre and all over the place. Uh, I thought yeah, that was it, interesting. It, it's a strange book, and I feel like there's this kind of ineluctable, ineffable. Uh, what is electable and what is effable? Good questions. But whatever they are, Dune is not that kind of strangeness is the point that we keep orbiting and never quite get down to the core of, which I guess is one of the really alluring things about this book. And probably for all of the mystical um, elements and the different traditions that Herbert is bringing in here, one of the things that is most sort of, I don't know if mysterious is the right word. You know, I I think Herbert is someone who strikes me at least via Dune as very mystical, I would say. Uh, about sort of the mystique of ecology and ecological processes and sort of links that into, you know, magical and technological systems. Um, And, you know, we're going to talk about that. Like one thing you mentioned uh, in our discord chat, which by the way, folks, if you're hearing this and you're not a patron, uh, (laughs) become patrons and you can join the discord chat. It's a lot of fun, but you mentioned there that you really wish that a lot more contemporary fiction um, took Dune's, what you consider to be enlightened approach towards ecology. Uh, or actually, you didn't use the word enlightened. You said that they were, it was good about ecology broadly. Like, what did you mean by that? Uh, well, for one, so like, okay, science, uh, science fiction has science in the name because I guess because it's ostensibly about how humans like use science to shape the future, right? But usually that science is like physics or engineering or chemistry, things like that. But it's almost never ecology, uh, except for Dune. There's probably some others, maybe Pete knows. Um, you know, he even has an appendix about the ecology of Arrakis. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen that in any other book. Um, but so it's kind of like a central part of the story. Um, and I feel like usually in science fiction or speculative fiction, ecology is sort of like a backdrop. Um, whereas even even books that are like dealing with that, like humans live on a wasteland because we restored everything or, um, you know, everything's perfect because we have mastered, um, control of everything. Um, it's just sort of like an afterthought. That's an interesting take. I want to fast on to what you said about like either ecology and science fiction. So first of all, that it's not centered, which I think is an astute observation. Like a lot of it tends to be things in the realm of engineering or physics, of course, is a big favorite of science fiction writers. Um, But ecology, which of course brings together other, uh, one might say more basic scientific disciplines like chemistry and biology, et cetera, gets pushed out um, to the periphery, perhaps because it is sort of like second order in that way, although you might dispute that. But, (laughs) um, you know, I I want your take on that. But I think like, one thing you said that's that's also great is uh, Dune is takes this, takes this out of the realm of the extreme because it's neither to say that a place like Arrakis or other places depicted throughout the Dune universe are either ecologically dystopian, um, though Arrakis is very harsh, or they're, they're they're utopian. Like you're in complete control and everything is great and you've got all the species you want and all of that. Like there's there's something in between and a sort of I think what that emerges from that is kind of the reality of ecology at least in my mind as a layman where it's like you have to have a lot of humility about this uh about the complexity of it and the ways that our apprehensions are limited and i think that in some ways dune is a great story about like the limits of apprehension of natural processes and the hubris of trying to do too much to control them and now i'm spinning off into the ether but like (laughs) not really a question but like what do you what do you think about all that no yeah that's that's totally correct i think uh, it's, you know, ecology is really like systems 
thinking. It's about like looking at systems and how organisms interact with each other and with their environment. So it's really like, it's so you're constantly finding all these threads of like one thing's connected to another thing, but that's connected to like 50 other things. And you're just trying, trying to figure out like cause and effect. And like, if we remove this thing, how does that change other things? And yeah, it requires, I think a lot of humility because you're, and you're also dealing with like just these vast, uh, vast interconnected things that have evolved over millions of years that, it's just very difficult to like wrap your head around sometimes. Yeah. And in the specific case of Dune in the first book, we have Arrakis, a brutal planet. that's mostly sort of like Sandy sort of Rubal Kali style desert that the Freemen really want to engineer in a different way to create their paradise. But they're also the Fremen rather they're, you know, they're an indigenous populace that has a lot of humility and a lot of expertise around the ecology of the planet. And then of course that's in contrast to the, literally imperial and colonial forces that are just there to extract, which is a a classic parable of how colonialism operates um, in some ways, at least. And this just occurred to me as we're talking about this, but there is a a reading of Dune and kind of what happens throughout the books, especially I think after the first one where you could say like, it's about, you know, the the Fremen are interesting because on the one hand, they do have this immense humility and harmony with the natural systems that live with them, but they're also determined for mystical and religious reasons um, and practical reasons, I guess, to sort of vastly re-engineer everything. Um, and it's sort of in some ways a story of like exploit, you know, like finding, understanding ecology well enough that you can radically exploit it and gain these new sources of power and then you take over the universe. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's like splitting the atom or like something like that, right? Like you gain this one insight into nature or a set of insights, then you, you sort of leverage all of it and suddenly you have this incredible set of powers. But in, in, in doing so, you undermine millennia of sort of harmony and more modest uh, understanding in relationship to ecology. Like, is that an accurate read in your estimation? Uh, yeah. I think so. Well, it's kind of like, um, and, and that's a really good point. Something else that I, I forgot to mention when you asked me about reading it now, just this sort of um, really almost direct analogy to imperial extraction, like in in the real world here on Earth. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you have the the weird white savior Paul thing who has to save everyone, but um, and. Yeah, and, and I think you can kind of compare it to we we look at how like indigenous people around the world um, they like learn how to manage the environment, but also like exist within it as part of it. And um, I think that's a good model. Uh, yeah, I kind of want to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, and I have to figure out how to make it Dune related. Uh, but like, I, you know, I, something that I'm very interested in is I'm sure something that you, you all talk about, uh, in your field, uh, probably in a more sophisticated way than I've ever been exposed to it. But I'm really interested in how we have this supposed human nature dichotomy, right? Human, humans, technology over here, nature over there, uh, as if we're somehow fully separate from natural processes and imposing ourselves on them or being imposed upon by them or whatever the relationship is, that it's this dichotomous antagonistic thing. Um, and you know, like talking about the Fremen or about how various real indigenous cultures existed, you could arguably say at least that it's, they don't see it as quite a strict, you know, as a strict dichotomy that they are simply part 
of a set of natural processes that yes, they have their way of managing, but like, this is at least one way to look at it. And like, do you think that like, um, I don't know about Dune itself, but do you think that like, well, first of all, it's kind of two questions. It's like, I don't know if, if you think we need to kind of overcome or change, alter that dichotomy, but if you, depending on how you feel about it going either way, like, do you think that sort of storytelling, imaginative storytelling can kind of help us get there? Yeah, I think, I think we do need to overcome that. I think that was a big mistake, uh, kind of led to some, uh, in my opinion, some really bad things. Uh, and, and I do, I do really think that storytelling and speculative fiction can play a huge role in that. Cause like, okay, if we're trying to imagine a society where we're, you know, uh, a good society, uh, that it were, that is just and ecologically sustainable that, you know, what I would call eco-socialism that, that is science fiction. Like what you're imagining, like that's something that's never existed before. So we need people to be like thinking, uh, wondering and imagining these types of things. Uh, pro- probably not Dune, though. <laughs> right. I mean, Dune is about it's a story about the tragedy of upsetting that balance in some ways, right? Like yeah. the, the balance has been achieved somewhere, but it in order to conquer the universe, you have to upend it to build your own empire. And that's essentially um, what happens. I mean, so has has that never existed before? Obviously, eco-socialism per se, I agree, you know, historically it's never existed. But are you saying that what's never existed is a form of society that's both like very technologically advanced and cosmopolitan and, you know, arguably globalized, which is a dirty word, but like ideally would mean (laughs) some degree of harmony around the planet. Um, You know, like it, but that has never existed in any kind of like uh, sustainable harmony with nature. Like, is that, you know, well, I don't know if we're getting, we might be getting too far from Dune, but I'm just trying to figure out like, I'm trying to figure out what exactly you mean by eco-socialism and how we start to conceptualize it. Yeah. So I would guess, uh, um, that's a big question. I think, so like, has it, has it ever existed before? I mean, like I was mentioning indigenous people kind of, you know, figured out these ways to like live, um, alongside and within, um, the planet, but I think we have, you know, there is a place for technological advances and and types of medicinal advances we've made. And, um, especially like, and also trying to like get to that point from where we are now and like conditions that have never existed. Um, is definitely doing something that has never happened before. And what that would, what is that? I guess, um, I would say a society where like everyone's basic needs are met and we're not, you know, we're, we're living sustainably on our life support system, planet earth. Uh, I guess that's a really basic definition. Well, I mean, that's a good definition. I'm just, I was just curious because like, I mean, you can touch on so many different debates. Um, I, and I phrased my question poorly because I had so many different moving parts. I just was, I think that you, you nailed it for my purposes. Um, I think where it gets interesting in the framework of something like Dune is like, 
Uh, well, let me ask you this. I, I don't want to make any assumptions. This is what you study. Um, to what extent, how to say this, to what extent is getting there a matter of like uh, sort of rolling back or stabilizing? I <laughs> How to say this? Like kind of to what extent, is, like how, what is the role of, current advanced technology and like hypothetical future advanced technology and making all this happen. And to what extent does your vision for it? I'm just asking you personally, as a matter of opinion, does your vision for a more ecologically harmonious future, like sort of hinge upon really ambitious, um, intentional engineering by human beings in the way that Dune imagines? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think so technology i think it's really interesting like what we think of as technology it's usually like that conjures up something made of metal with a silicon chip in it um and i think i think we need to kind of broaden our horizons of what um what we're looking to innovate and maybe like different forms of socio-political organization of human societies, um, like what that could look like. And, you know, there, there's going to be a big role for humans managing, um, I think, managing ecosystems, probably not on the scale of what they do in Arrakis, but, like, we have to restore lots of ecosystems that we've destroyed. Um, and that's going to take like deliberate effort. So, okay. That's a good answer. I, I, I'm dying for some, if you can come up with some like specific examples of like technologies and whatever definition of technology you want. I, I get your point about it's not just electronics, advanced electronics, but like, um, what are some technologies and practices you would love to see scaled up or maybe some other ones that you'd like to see that you can imagine being workable, you'd like to see it invented? Do you have like a, a wish list of things like that? Oh, jeez. Uh, I mean, it would be cool. So if it was a wish list, we're talking like science fiction, like just a way of harvesting solar energy um, which we're still like not that good at. And also it takes, you know, creating a solar panel takes a lot of energy itself and, uh, rare earth minerals from, uh, countries that get exploited and extracted, uh, you know, or something, something that's like, like a man-made photosynthesis, you know, where you can really, there's all that solar energy come down the planet. Um, how to use that in, in terms I, I think the the place for like I guess what what people commonly think of as technology I think is for most people a bit overstated it feels like people are looking for like this deus ex machina to come like Elon Musk to invent something um, but there's not really anything like that on the horizon and we betting on that is kind of a uh, uh, risky to say the least. So I think, 
I, th- I think we have a lot that we know that we can do right now. And uh, that's where we should be putting a lot of effort and also experimenting. Well, I, I don't know, Matt. I heard about this exciting new carbon sequestration uh, technology. <laughs> I heard that you can uh, take take these things and plant them in the ground and they'll just grow on their own and absorb sunlight and grow roots. I think they're called trees. Is that right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, you can even get food from them too. <laughs> Amazing. I can't believe we haven't made more use of these already. <laughs> sounds so so incredible. Um, I mean, that, I think that to me, like that gets to... You know, if I made you planetary ecologist, like I, I could make this, put this in simpler terms. If I made you planetary ecologist of Earth, you know, and you had the power of the imperial ecologists on Dune, who actually probably don't have that much power ultimately, but they at least get to oversee all of these experiments and, and efforts and stuff. Like, I'm guessing that one thing you would do with the stroke of the pen immediately is just plant an incredible amount of trees. Am I, am I right? Uh, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, it's also... Uh, you also have to be careful because there's going to be people trying to like, pro- like say like, oh, pay us to plant trees, and we're just going to plant a bunch of trees in like a monoculture farm, and we really have to like some some places evolved over millions of years to like as a different biome that doesn't have that either has certain types of trees or even like an ecosystem that doesn't have a lot of trees like grasslands, and we have to be like restoring grasslands too that stores carbon and like uh wetlands um just kind of tailored to whatever the area is but yeah trees lots of trees especially god the what's happening in brazil with the amazon rainforest is, is real bad yeah i mean i think like it we could we could probably get very grim for a very long time on this <laughs> podcast about our current situation i mean like you know me on Twitter. You know how I am on the pod. Like I, I'm probably way too rosy about things, just because like when people get extremely doom and gloom and move towards nihilism or being blackpilled or whatever your phrase of choices, I tend to, my instinct is immediately to push back. Partly just because my temperament is such that I I can be very anxious and very brooding about a lot of things, and I don't like to live that way. So if I'm going to participate in discourse, I try to like fight against his instincts in myself. And I'm sure that at times leads me to be just far too optimistic about certain things. But like, oh, what were you going to say? Oh, no, nothing. I was just laughing. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know this about me. You've you yeah, yeah. me on these, on these matters. And, you know, yeah. I, I think it's important because if you don't, if you don't, this is what we talk about, we're on a science fiction podcast. If you don't conceptualize the future, right? If you don't have a positive account for what the future could be like, and in some ways, that's what science fiction does. I mean, it gives us negative accounts, neutral accounts, whatever you want, to, how you want to frame them. It gives us lots of different ways of imagining the future. It's it's an act of imagination um, pointed towards the future. And if you don't, if you're not gonna, if you can't conceptualize a better future, <laughs> you're gonna be in real trouble because your your ability to do anything uh, useful here in the present is gonna be severely attenuated by that. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. I I think like. I'll take that over nihilism any day of the week. Cause then if, if there's no hope, then like, what are we doing here? Uh, you know, and, and I've t- been talking with some other people about this. It's a really, it seems to be a very like male, uh, phenomenon. <laughs> this, this not nihilism and nothing, you know, nothing matters, which I think is, is interesting. Well, that makes perfect sense to me because it's selfish and masculinity is selfish, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to be a gender essentialist and say that all women are unselfish. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying at no, all. Sure. But I think, 
as we've constructed masculinity culturally, like men, yeah, I mean, that, I think that it's, it's fair to say that there's a sort of like grasping extractive, you might say, uh, <laughs> selfishness <laughs> in, in masculinity. And like, so that makes, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always said, and this probably is way too simplistic way of putting it, but like, you know, um, it, it's so, even for those of us who are, who consider ourselves leftists and have a little bit of training, uh, in, you know, a working class politics, in a anti-capitalist politics and trying to imagine an egalitarian politics. I think that those of us from one might say bougier backgrounds, such as myself, um, you know, it, <laughs> to realize the extent to which other people are experiencing structural crises already and the extent to which then we sort of want to, or feel, feel forced to imagine ourselves for the first time experiencing <laughs> certain structural crises, right? Is that like, that's, I think that's a lot of what I see with the climate stuff. It's like people imagine that they might be finally exposed to things that a lot of people are already exposed to. Yeah. That's the thing. That's a great way of putting it. Like you have people like people are talking, talking about like a climate change catastrophe happening in the future, but there's people experiencing that right now. And there's sacrifice zones, um, all over the world or, here in the U.S., where people are just kind of left to deal with horrible pollution or the effects of climate they're already here, right? And like that's incredibly sobering to think about. I think it's both sobering, but not to. I have to be careful not to be blithe, but like at the same time, um, it is a nice reminder that like you know we we continue to exist and that cr these crises are not a matter of like, you know, one day there's the crisis and then we're all dead. <laughs> Nuc nuclear war would be like that maybe, <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> short of that, short of nuclear war asteroid. I mean, that's how I try to con conceptualize it. And like that, I guess to go back to science fiction, sorry, we, <laughs> sorry everyone, but like we're, we're laying out our concepts here. I think that to tie this back into science fiction, I would, you know, you know, do you think this is kind of a softball question, but do you think that um, science fiction has a real role to play here and now uh, in helping us, you know, figure this out. And what would you like to see um, science fiction writers do better? And like, of course, learning from Dune, which is the topic here, but like, obviously Dune was 50 years ago. The environmental movement didn't really exist in its modern form when he was writing it. Like, it was just a different universe for these things. And in many ways, he was, he was, he was prescient in a lot of ways. But like, you know, I mean, if we're thinking about like what we need, not just our science fiction, but all of our stories to help us conceive of and make a better future happen. Like what are some things that jump out to you as somebody who thinks a lot about the narrative arts and about trying to engineer a better future? Uh, yeah, I think I said it before, but I, I think eco-socialism is science fiction and like we're, we have to like, um, we need people to imagine what these things could look like. And that's not to be like deterministic, but it's just like, cause I think, I think, the future societies have to be like co-created and people come up with these things together. But like individuals have a role in like coming up with potential ideas or, or even not necessarily, not even like ideas as like prescriptions to follow, but just like things that can inspire hope and like, Oh wow, maybe, maybe a better world is possible. Yeah. So I want to explore that a little bit. Cause I, I think I broadly agree. Um, are you saying what do you, what do you imagine there? Like, would it be cool if someone did, I mean, maybe the softball version would just be to say like someone with your kind of expertise or the expertise of people that you work with 
sort of bring that all together and creating like some, you know, eight volume game of uh, Song of Ice and Fire length epic that really spells out in like meticulous didactic detail how this would all work or like, you know, that's one way to do it. Like what, what are you, what kind of things are you imagining when you, when you yeah, think about that? I, I think that's one thing that, that sounds kind of cool. Um, but also, I don't know, like, like we were talking about before, it'll just like, and I, I don't even know what this could look like, but playing around with ecology, like, like they, people do with physics and speculative fiction and just like, um, maybe even trying to break down that human nature um, barrier that we still have up in our minds in that way. Are there any writers that you think can think of that are working right now who you think are doing a good job of this? And I'll, I'll lob one at you. I feel like someone like Jeff Vandermeer is very interested in breaking down that human nature dichotomy. So he leaps to mind immediately. Um, I don't know what you think about him or about anyone else. Yeah, that was who I was going to say. Um, I, I've only read uh, the Annihilation series. Um, I'm not f- not familiar with his other work, but that's definitely the first thing that came to mind. Um, I'm not aware of much else. You know, I know Kim Stanley Robinson um, tries to do a good job of, of incorporating some ecology and, and sort of positive uh, but possible future thinking as work not necessarily breaking down the man nature barrier I guess but maybe a little bit yeah he's someone that I really need to read I, I admit you know as people know I am a science fiction neophyte relatively speaking I haven't gotten him but we're definitely going to address him on the show and we'll try to get him on as a guest if he's interested but um, oh, nice. yeah we're, we'll try uh, those, are, those are some those are some really interesting picks. Um, and I'm just like, <laughs> I have so many thoughts and I feel like I, I want to apologize to listeners here for, uh, you know, me having all these grand thoughts about climate change, which we're talking about Dune, but <laughs> okay. I mean, all right, I, I'll ask you this about Dune. Um, you know, like, are there specific elements about Dune that reflect on ecology that you think have held up well and or are there ones that you think have like look sort of primitive or have, or have held up poorly, you know, over 50 years later? Like, what do you really think about Dune in the current discussion about how ecology can work in storytelling? Uh, well, I thought it was really interesting. So I was listening to the episode with um, Jacob uh, Bacharach. I think I pronounced that right. Um, and you guys were talking about how maybe like the potential that maybe Paul wasn't supposed to be the main character of this story and the planetary ecologist was, uh, I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't considered that before. And I, I think one thing that's really, uh, interesting to think about with Dune is that, so like ecology was, ecology is a really new science and was sort of invented in like the late 19th century, but it didn't really like pick up much traction until around the time that Dune was being written. So this was like pretty, I would say pretty cutting edge stuff thinking about, um, especially as like someone writing science fiction, not a scientist or at least not an official scientist, um, 
thinking about like life in terms of these sweeping systems and interactions between organisms. Um, so I think that is held up. Uh, I'm trying to think of like what has not held up in that regard. Um, well, I'll prompt you a little bit. I mean, I know you want to keep thinking about it, but I thought I had when you mentioned the idea of Kynes, the planetary ecologist, being the main character. Um, to go back to what we were saying about like the that Dune is a parable about like sort of breaking, taking the knowledge you have from living in harmony with nature and using it to exploit nature to get immense power over humans. That's essentially what Dune's about in a sense. Um, and it, I think it's very interesting to say that like it seems as if Frank Herbert may have wanted to write a weird epic along the lines of what I just said, like this really detailed ecology epic uh, that didn't really get written and didn't get written for a lot of reasons. I do think it's a, it's very serendipitous that he was writing this in the early days of the U.S. war in Vietnam. So as we're over in Vietnam, you know, dropping defoliant on the entire Vietnamese jungle, uh, he's making the decision that it's much more interesting to readers to read about, you know, exploitation of nature for an imperial project than it is to give people his actual sort of early environmental movement uh, ecology epic. And, I, and look, that may be an unfair reading of, of the, what he's doing here, but I think that it's an interesting historical serendipity, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's thinking about this book in that context is, is really um, interesting. And um, something I was thinking about very recently was like the spice of sort of uh, you know, I don't think this is intended, but and it's not really an exact analogy, but the spice as like fossil fuels. Oh, good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, just like the thing that the whole, the whole society runs on and we need it and people are addicted to it. And like, I mean, their whole, their whole interplanetary interstellar tran uh, transportation system requires spice. It's like, oh, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, like, you know, in the contemporary world, we talk about large scale extraction politics. Fossil fuels is probably what leaps to mind. But actually, now that you mentioned it, there's, as you just said, it powers interplanetary travel. There's more parallels to, to it than, uh, than I guess I thought about. Like, of course, it's out there in the deep desert in very much a Saudi style sandy desert. Um, interesting. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. I hadn't really given that much thought. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm really wrapped up in my own reading now of like Dune is like an attempted an ecological epic that turns into uh, another imperial tragedy, <laughs> and like that is that is so poignant on so many levels. Um, that's my that's what I'm coming away from this with. But like you know, um, gosh, I it's not just about my theories. I mean, like what? Hmm. I'll, I'll ask you. Such yeah. Oh, just like you were saying before, it's like at the start, it's just such a weird book. And I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons it's like endures to this day. Like you can just, I don't know, people probably come away from doing with all these different readings of it because it's so weird and in some ways incoherent. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I think there's something about Dune that remains elusive. Um, yeah. and that's why it's so interesting. There's just, there's just so many different strands layered into it that it feels like you're, you're orbiting this deep mystery, uh, even as he sort of tries to explain all the, the deep mysticism throughout the, the course of the series, uh, it still feels oddly impenetrable. Um, and I think that's one thing that the David Lynch movie, I don't know if you've seen that, does a good job visually depicting is some of the 
alienating mystery of it. Um, and in a sense, <laughs> that kind of deep mystery you can never fully grasp. Like that's kind of something that Vandermeer touches on a lot too. Like there, there's something about natural processes that like we, that perhaps not to get too kooky, but our scientific processes, you know, I think there, that there's a place for some humility about the limits of our scientific processes and our ability to apprehend and control natural processes. Do you think that's true? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good point about Vandermeer and, um, maybe one thing that, well, it is science fiction, but, uh, one thing about doing that, um, maybe overestimating, uh, what's, what's possible just as like a, if you understand ecology, just like the planetary ecologists. So we're going to change the desert planet into like a lush verdant planet. Um, Right. That might be a little unfair. Well, Dune is definitely a story about hubris. That's yeah. for sure. Um, and uh, boy, talking about ecology, we can get into all kinds of hubris. But um, <laughs> Matt, uh, thank you so much, man. I think there's a pretty good chance we'll we'll tap into your expertise in various ways uh, on the show and in the Discord chat, which everyone should become a patron and join the Discord chat where you can hear some of Matt's wisdom. Um, but I think this is probably a pretty good place to call it. And Unless you have anything else you want to say or anything you want to plug, I'll ask you that. Is there anything you want to promote? Uh, anything I want to promote? Uh, check out DSA Eco Socialists, DSA underscore Enviro on Twitter. DSA underscore Enviro on Twitter. Check them out, follow them, heed their their warnings before it's too late. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I probably actually do. Uh, so, with that, uh, Matt. Thanks a lot, man. It's been a real pleasure and it's been really educational. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care, man. And thanks everyone yet again. Bye-bye.